In recounting a life-changing conversation he had with a professor, Sean Norris wrote this. My professor said, we are all sufferers under our sin. It cut straight through me. I almost didn't believe him. It was the first time that someone had validated the pain that I had experienced as a sinner. It was the first time I felt truly addressed. Here I was, a western white suburban Christian male. According to the Christianity of my upbringing, I had never really suffered in my life. But in a single swipe, my teacher dismissed all of that. He told us to stop comparing ourselves to others. He leveled the playing field and destroyed the categories and false hierarchies I had put myself in. He continues. Instead, he told us the truth. The only point of comparison that truly mattered was the perfect demand of the law. In that light, there was no exception. We were all condemned, and as a result, we all had the same need, the need for grace. I was pointed back to Jesus Christ and his cross, the one who knows our suffering and chose to suffer it once and for all so that our stories would cease to be about guilt and shame and would become about forgiveness and freedom. I learned that day that the gospel was for me, and it changed my life forever. John Norris's professor must have been very familiar with the theology of St. Paul. We all had the same need, the need for grace. When Paul wrote his Essentials of the Christian Faith, or Theology of the Cross 101, some people call that Romans, uh, <laughs> he was adamant that we understand we cannot save ourselves. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We cannot, by any human effort, attain to the perfection of God's holiness. We can't. In fact, so convinced was Paul of, of this fact that he redefined, he reimagined the entire Jewish law. He wrote, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. This wasn't just some guy from outside the Jewish faith. He grew up in it, and he was an expert in it, and he redefined the entire law. He explains that instead of it being a moral code, that if we follow, we will be all set, it is actually the judge, jury, and executioner of each and every one of us. It clearly and without prejudice establishes that we are all sinners and can never of our own devices be holy. Paul explains, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under law, that's everybody, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Paul believes that we are all sinners and that the law exists, and here's the key, not to inspire us to try to do our best to follow it. But the law exists, as Trevigian wrote, to extinguish any sense that we can get her done. And the only sane response to its comprehensive demand is a cry for mercy. The law brings us to our knees, revealing to believers, that's key, Every please hear that. Please hear that, okay? Because I know when I use the word gospel, half of us start shutting down. Oh, I've heard the gospel. I've been a Christian 25 years, okay? 
to believers and unbelievers alike who we really are. Namely, sinners in need of a Savior. All of us. The law is the schoolmaster that teaches us just how much we need to receive from Jesus everything, every day. Paul knew we truly needed everything from Jesus. He explained it this way. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in all of us. Big deal. Big, big deal. And Paul never deviates from this essential understanding of the gospel, and I suggest, nor should we. We have to resist the temptation to make the law less than what it is. It is huge, and it is a very big deal. When we reduce it to simply a code of ethics or a list of morals. And don't get me wrong here. Please don't misunderstand me. Ethics are surely to be found in the law. And certainly the law can help us calibrate our moral compasses. That's not what I'm saying. But when we think that's what the law is, we are running into the cheapness and easiness of legalism and away from the costliness and challenges of grace. And yes, I said that. Grace is much more costly and much more challenging than legalism. See, whenever we hinge our justification before God on what we do, we cheapen grace. There is this idea amongst modern Western Christians that when we tell people especially when we tell believers that no matter what they do or don't do, God loves them. That's something you hear me say a lot here. And there's this idea that that is cheapening grace. No. I categorically deny that accusation. And I believe I have Jesus' and Paul's entire theology behind me when I say that. What, after all, is cheap about God dying for us while we were yet sinners? What is cheap about that? What is cheap about God giving us His holiness at the expense of His own life because He knew we could never, ever get it ourselves? See, what really cheapens grace is the sense, any sense, that we can do anything, anything at all, to earn God's love that He so freely gives us and died to prove to us. That's what cheapens grace. Do you remember when the disciples asked Jesus this question? Then who can be saved? This was right after Jesus defined the law properly. See, there was this rich guy. And he said, hey Jesus, what can I do to inherit the kingdom of God? What can I do to be saved in our vernacular? And Jesus first used the law the way we humans use the law. He broke it down into little laws. He said, well, don't do this, 
don't do this, do this. And the rich young guy was very honest and said, well, I've done all that. I do all that. I always follow those laws. And Jesus sort of smiled to himself, knowing the guy was being honest. And then he used the law the way God uses the law. He made it big, not little. And he said, well, why don't you sell everything you have and give it to the poor? And the guy turned around and walked away. The law exposes that we can't love God and love others perfectly. And remember, we've examined this. Righteousness, true righteousness, is loving God and loving others perfectly. And the law exposes that beautifully. That's what the guy couldn't do. Jesus never reduced the law to a prize we should be trying to grasp. Jesus never reduced the law to little laws. He never opened the door, even slightly, to even the remotest possibility that we could ever save ourselves. That would be blasphemous to him. That is why he said, Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, here's how we cheapen grace. Because I'm sure you have heard what I'm about to say from a pulpit. I'm I'm sure you've even said it to others, and I'm sure you say it to yourself every day. When we read this, and we say, well, he never really meant be perfect. He meant we should try to do our best to follow the law. No, he didn't. He meant be perfect. Why? Because he knew If we really try to be perfect, we are finally going to come to the end of ourselves and hopefully do the only thing we should do. Fall on our knees and beg for mercy. Every single one of us. Listen to the answer he gave to the disciples' question. With people, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. The gospel's awesome. And it's for each one of us every day of our life. You know, whenever you start to feel pretty good about yourself and, and how obedient Christian you are, there's a great exercise that I do. I go Matthew 19 and I read the story. And I picture Jesus standing in front of me right now and saying, David, sell all your possessions and give them to the poor. There is no one in this room, and I am not criticizing you, that will ever do that. We are white, middle-class Americans. And boy, does that bring me down a notch. But it doesn't fill me with guilt. Because even if I did it, even if I was a single guy, and I didn't have a family to worry about, and I did it, And there was a time in my life I was almost doing that when I was living in India amongst the poor. Still wasn't going to justify me. Still wasn't making me better than anybody else sitting in this room. We all need grace. And this is exactly what Paul knows and what Paul teaches and what Paul is trying so desperately to get the believers in Corinth to understand.
right after he gives them this vice list. Okay, he says, be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And right after he says that, he says this. Because Paul never ends on any kind of warning. And such were some of you, but ye are washed, ye are sanctified, ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. This is one of the most theologically packed statements Paul ever made. We could spend, I'm thinking, six months at least on this verse. It's got the Trinity, which is very difficult to find in the Bible, but here it's pretty clear. Lord Jesus, Spirit, God. So it's got the Trinity. It's got sanctification. It's got justification. It's getting washed from our sins. These are massive, massive Christian concepts that speak to the heart of our faith. Six months, I could do six years on this verse, but I'm not going <laughs> to. <laughs> For the purpose of this current series, I instead want to focus on Paul's main point. Christ and Him crucified. God forgives sinners. We can't lose the forest for the trees when we start reading Paul. I spoke of this last week. Okay? We can't obscure his major point by getting lost in the details. See, here we go. It is easy to read this verse and think that Paul is saying here that the, some of the believers in Corinth used to do the bad things on the list, and now they're not doing them anymore. It's easy to read this and think that somehow they had overcome their vices. It doesn't say that. It's not what this verse says. Read it carefully. See, that is a narrative we love. We love it so much we hear it even when it's not there. We love to hear improvement testimonies. I was a heroin addict. Then I met Jesus, and now I'm not. I hated my boss. Then I met Jesus. I don't hate him anymore. My marriage was a mess. Then I met Jesus, and now it's perfect. I don't want anyone to misunderstand me. Improvements are great things. And I will celebrate without apology with anyone who has genuine and authentic experiences of overcoming darkness in their life after they meet Jesus. That's beautiful and it's something to celebrate. However, what I am warning against, these narratives are not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even though we in our American Christianity, have come to believe that. The gospel is this. We were sinners, and now, because of Jesus' death and resurrection, we are saints. Period. The gospel is about what Jesus did, not about what we do. See, when we let a narrative, an improvement narrative, become the gospel, it sets us up for a lot of pain and confusion. And it is no longer good news. Because some of us don't have instant improvements after meeting Jesus. Some of us never have improvements after meeting Jesus. Some of us are drug addicts meet Jesus, and are still drug addicts. 
Some of us have a bad marriage, meet Jesus, and our marriage gets worse. Not bad. You see, the complexity of the human being in a fallen state is often beyond our understanding. This is what that professor told Sean Norris. We all suffer under sin. This is why Paul said the earth itself groans under sin. I had a grandpa. My grandpa was clinically and chronically depressed. He had no joy in his life. He often had it. Not often, I shouldn't say that. Occasionally he had manic phases, but he had no joy. Now, there are Christians in this world that will look you in the eye and tell you if you really know Jesus, you'll have joy. Really? You're going to invalidate my grandpa's story because of your black and white understanding of Christianity? My grandpa loved Jesus more than I do. My grandpa... We as kids never even wanted my grandpa to say grace. Because when he'd say grace for the food, he'd quote the entire book of Isaiah. (laughs) By heart. The first time my wife met him, we were in Scotland. He comes down. He was up in his room. He'd been up in his room for like three weeks or something. Comes down. Talks to us, what, honey? 45 minutes? And in 45 minutes, I think she got Psalms, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. (laughs) He went back up to his room. She's like, what just happened? going to invalidate my grandpa's relationship with God because he didn't have joy. Improvement testimonies create pain more than they share the truth. Here's what you do to Vigian notes on them. When the gospel gets twisted into a moral improvement scheme, self-deception is the foregone conclusion. Instead of a hospital for sufferers, Church becomes a glorified costume party where lonely men and women tirelessly police each other's facades of holiness. Canaan might do a lot of things wrong, but I pray, and as long as I'm part of it, I will fight tooth and nail that we will ever become that. Those are the churches that have destroyed people's lives. They destroyed mine, and I'm sure they've destroyed many people sitting right here. Jesus said, I have come for the sick and the lost. And that's every single one of us. That's why we're here. Paul understood this. Now let's really read what he said to the Corinthians. You're washed, sanctified, justified. They didn't wash themselves. They didn't sanctify themselves. They didn't justify themselves. God did it for them. And now, they are in a new relationship with God, and as Paul explains, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's good news. Or, as Sean Norris said, our lives are no longer about guilt and shame. They're about forgiveness and freedom. This is the good news that Paul is getting at. As horrible as those sinners in Corinth were, and some still are, 
they're saints. Just because some people don't improve on our schedule and according to our standards, we cannot make black and white evaluations about their relationship with God. We cannot delegitimize their stories. God makes saints. We don't. And I know that raises a huge question. I was going to end right there. And then I said to myself, if I am there, I'm in heaps of trouble. The question is, but David, this seems like a very serious warning. What are we supposed to do with it? Ignore it? No, we never ignore it. You never ignore Scripture. You don't dismiss Scripture. And it is a very serious warning for all of us. This is why I reminded us of Paul's theology. To help us understand the details better without losing the greater theology. Remember, the gospel is at stake in Corinth. Just like the gospel is always at stake in our lives every day. You know why? <coughs> because part of being a fallen human being is thinking we can always justify ourselves. That's why the gospel is always at stake in our lives. And the better Christians we are, the more it's at stake. So what's Paul doing? Well, Paul's using the law the way Paul always uses the law. He's holding it up and he's saying, here is proof that you are a sinner and will never meet the demands of a holy God. Violating the law, capital L, in any of these ways, small l, or in any myriad of other ways, because this certainly isn't the complete law, is a violation of the whole law, and sinners will never inherit the kingdom of God. The good news is, because of grace, you have been remade into saints. You are not sinners any longer. You will now inherit the kingdom of God because of what God has done for you. You have been given the righteousness of Christ. Here comes the warning. Now live into that righteousness. You have been given the keys of the kingdom. Now come on in and live there. And stop living somewhere else. This is not the way Christ lives, Paul is saying. And remember, Paul had to define for the Corinthians what Christ-likeness was. This is the birth of Christianity. Someone calls it Western struggles. We, We... we struggle because we got 57 different translations. That's a struggle. They didn't even have one. So they couldn't even argue with each other. No, that's not what Jesus said. That's not what he did. No. Paul is defining for them what Christ likeness is. We're going to talk about that a lot more next week. So he's saying, but you've been given Christ's life. Surrender then your own life and let this new life in you take over. The life of Christ in you will want to live loving God and others. See, that's what Christ in us wants to do. And that new life will try to push out these other ways of doing life. Now, Paul was well aware that maybe for some this would be instant transformation. 
And maybe some of those people that had been sanctified, justified, and washed were instantly transformed as well. But he also knew that for most it would be a very slow tango and a very messy tango of two steps up and one step down. And maybe even for some, it would be one step up and one step back. Remember, even for St. Paul, his was a messy tango. This is him, about himself. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. If that doesn't sound like a messy tango to you, This is St. Paul. And my guess is, in reading St. Paul and his library of things, is that this evil he's doing is probably coming from one of his vice lists. Paul had about two or three vice lists that he'd use, depending on who he was writing to. How does that strike you? The apostle who we read and study was struggling maybe with something from his own vice list. See, but notice what he says. The good I want to do. For Paul, the issue was, are you moving into the life you have so freely received by grace? Do you even want to? There's the issue. Like my grandpa. He couldn't be invalidated in his love for the Lord just because he didn't have joy because of his clinical depression. But in his brighter moments, he knew he wanted that. But it just wasn't something he was ever going to have. See, remember, we can't read Paul out of context. That's what we love to do. We talked about this for weeks, way back when we started Corinthians. Many of these believers were not struggling with this stuff. As most of us, when we start struggling as believers, we're struggling with it. We're Paul. I don't want to do it. We're on our knees. God, I'm so sorry I did it for the 177th time. I don't want to. That's not what's happening to these people. Most of them were actively pursuing it and justifying it with some bogus theology about freedom and lack of concern for the body. And we'll, we'll talk about that next week when we finish up chapter 6. You'll see their arguments. In fact, their arguments, it's so funny. A lot of people will quote Paul as something he said from chapter 6. He never said it. He's just quoting their arguments. I, I love that. It's, oh, Paul's brilliant. Anyway. For Paul, pursuing and justifying unchristlikeness and not even wanting to be like Christ is incompatible with being saints. And so he warned them quite severely. He writes, Theology for Paul is not an abstraction, but the application of the gospel to life in the real world. He insists there is to be the closest possible, possible, a lot of times it's not possible, Joy was not possible for my grandpa. He insists there is to be the closest possible relationship between the experience of grace and one's behavior that evidences that experience of grace. So regardless 
of what our particular vices may or may not be. This difficult warning is for all of us. It's for all of us. See, if we are in Christ, and we are actively pursuing and rationalizing and justifying decidedly non-Christ-like living, then perhaps we should be sure we have understood the gospel. That's the warning. Have we met Jesus? And let me bring this back home before our minds start doing with Scripture what we're not supposed to do. We do with Scripture, too often we read it and start thinking about, oh, that other person. So let me bring this back home before we start thinking about people in our lives that we better check and see if they've met Jesus. Let's just go back to Matthew chapter 19. Sell all your possessions. We all need Jesus. We all need Jesus. We're all sinners. Only God makes us saints. Once He does, we probably will have some desire to know Him and some awareness that we should probably want to live like Him. It will be messy, but at least it will be authentic. If we don't, and that's where it gets challenging, there's a lot in our own lives that we do that have nothing to do with loving others. That's what the warning's about for all of us. Here's the good news. This life of grace we are called to live is an invitation to the very life we were made for. Remember the image of God. That's about loving others. That's what is in us. And even better, here's even better news. The Holy Ghost now living in us is simply waiting for us to give Him space to make it happen. This is why it's called the Gospel. Grace saves us, and grace makes us like Christ. We just got to get out of the way. And Lamont has this great line about God's just waiting to come into our life and be a track coach for slow people. Because <laughs> that's what we need. We're slow and we need a track coach anyway. Or better, as an old hymnist and poet John Berridge wrote, to run and work the law commands, yet gives me neither feet or hands, a sweeter thing the gospel brings. It bids me fly. It gives me. Amen. I'm sorry I went so long.